seconds of silence, some of you were probably thinking, what happened? Whose job is it to go next? Who's next in the order? There's something interesting. <laughs> it was hard for me to wait back there. I was like, okay, I got to go. There's something weird that happens to us when we are forced to wait. Just this past week, I was meeting with a friend, an old friend of mine that's helping me do work on this project that I have in mind. And so I had to meet with her. And so I'm sitting there, I'm waiting at the, at the coffee shop that I, we were supposed to meet. And I remember I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. She says, I'll be there 10 minutes late. 10 minutes later, I'm still stuck in traffic. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Still stuck in traffic. I'll be there as fast as I can get there. And a part of me was getting extremely impatient. Now, I understand Southern California traffic system is horrendous here. I understand that. I had sat in a bit of traffic myself. But when we are forced to wait, we become extremely uncomfortable at times. Sure, we have our technology and we have all of these other things that we can do as we wait. But there's something that happens within our minds that when we wait, we, we begin to start thinking perhaps of worst case scenarios. During this Christmas time and during this time that as a Christian church calls the time of Advent, the season of Advent, the coming, the waiting, it is a time of waiting. Not just of waiting for the eventual return of Christ, but it is also a time where we can anticipate it and expect it. When you expect something or when you anticipate something that you know is going to happen, you have faith and you continue to have hope in the fact that what we are waiting for will actually happen. Now, how many of you like going on vacation? Of course, most people like going on vacations. Once a year, I try to go on an extended vacation. And I can't wait for that vacation. A part of that, and as most of you have come to know, I, I usually go at the, where it's the cheapest. So I go to New York to my brother's house where he doesn't charge me a nightly fee. Not only that, he always takes me out to dinner to the nicest places because his wife doesn't like fast food. I'm treated like royalty. But before I get there, I make all sorts of preparations. I talk to the elders and I may inform that they will be preaching while I'm gone or to Pastor Brett. Before I leave, I make sure that the bulletin is going to get done. That the, I try to make sure that the weekly newsletter goes out, but even when I'm here, it doesn't go out every week. I try to make sure that all of my bills are paid. I make sure that all of my responsibilities, as much as I'm able to, are taken care of. Before I even get there, then I start wondering, what are all the things I'm going to want? Right? And in New York, it's cold, so I make sure that my winter jacket is out, and I make sure I have those long johns, and I make sure I have socks, and I go and buy whatever I need. I decide which books I'm going to take, and I pack a, a completely separate suitcase just for the books and journals and stuff of the work that I'm going to get done while I'm on vacation. I make plans and I prepare. And even though it's, it's far away, even though it's 30 days away before I get to go on vacation, I am already planning how that vacation is going to go. I make plans to visit friends in the city if I'm able to get there while I'm there. So even though that time hasn't come for me to take the flight to New York, the, t the expectation and the anticipation that I'm living with about the reality that that's going to happen is very real. And so it makes all the extra hours of work feel okay. It makes all the extra responsibilities that I have to take care of before that time, it makes it okay because I know that just over the horizon, I will get to go on vacation. And I believe as Christians and as Adventists, as we wait for the promised coming 
of the Messiah once again. That we don't just have to wait for the day when Jesus comes to begin to experience the fullness of what life can be with him. Because the Bible tells us that eternal life is to know God. Real life. Not just the Bible, but Jesus. If your Bible has the red letters that signify when Jesus is talking, Jesus tells his disciples that eternal life is to know and be known by God. Which means that eternal life doesn't begin at some point in the future, but rather eternal life begins in the present moment now. Now, I'm not saying that everything is perfect. There are many of you who came up here or who didn't even come up here, but you are heavy burdened with things, with with things that are causing you worry and depression and anxiety. Some of you are facing ailments and illnesses that you haven't had resolved for years. So eternal life in the present, the now, isn't just about the absence of evil and sin and horrible things. It is about being in the presence of the God who is, the God who was, the God that is to come. But even as we wait, it is so easy to be distracted because I've never seen God. I've never seen God face to face. I've never even seen Jesus. I've never seen the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes it's difficult to keep on hoping. But even in the midst of this waiting, we can have hope. Because the Bible tells us, and every year we remember, the coming of Christ for the first time as a baby. And it is that coming that gives us hope and reason to believe and accept that he will come again. And so this morning I want to look at just two stories. Uh, We're not going to use the PowerPoint for the initial part. So if you want to just open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. So that's page 702 in the red Bibles in front of you. You can use your Bible translation, but this would make it easier for us to all kind of be on the same page. Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to talk about what it looks like as we wait for the coming of Christ. Matthew 25, verse 1. Jesus is having, Jesus just finished having a conversation with his disciples, or he's rather in the midst of it. And Jesus is saying, I am coming again, I am coming again, but before I return to earth, all sorts of things have to take place. So I will let you go home and read Matthew chapter 24, um, because it would take us hours and hours and hours just to go through that one chapter. So this morning we're going to just look at what it looks like to wait for the coming of Christ and how we can do it well. Chapter 25, verse 1 says this, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. So there was ten uh, virgins. Other Bible translations says bridesmaids. So there was ten women. Each of them had a little lamp. Five of them had extra oil in case they ran out. Five of them did not. The wise, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, the falling asleep doesn't have any spiritual significance in this story, because they all fell asleep. Some were wise, some were foolish. All of them fell asleep because when we wait and it's late at night, we end up falling asleep. So that's the story so far. Verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. 
The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. So I want to pause here for a moment. There is this image of, first of all, we have to ask the question, where, where did the groom go? In the first century, we've talked about how oftentimes the custom was for the, for the groom to come and offer to marry a man's daughter. And if he gave him enough money, I know it's a different culture and it sounds bad, but if he paid the dowry and gave enough money to the father, then the father says, okay, great, thanks. Then the son would go back to his father's house. And the son, he, he wouldn't move out, he wouldn't move to the city, he would just add an addition to his father's house. And then, after however long that took, it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years, just depending, I guess, how much they wanted to build, or how much he had to continue to work to pay this dowry, then he would return to the lady's father and take the woman, and then he would marry her, and they would go into a wedding banquet, and they would, you know, have a big feast. So that's what would happen in the first century, and this is what we see happening The groom comes back after an unexpected length of time. He was gone a long while, it says. The point isn't how long. It's that as they waited, they waited and waited. They ran out of oil. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, he arrived, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, saying, Sir, sir, open the door for us. So somehow, at some point in the future, and these weddings didn't last one day. I believe they lasted seven days. So at some point within the next week, these women finally arrived, and they said, Let us in, open the door. But he replied to you the truth, I do not know you. And then Jesus says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Implicit in this passage is that there is a way to be prepared and a way not to be prepared. What Jesus is trying to get across is that we may wait for a really long time. Some of you may even see death before you see Christ. Now that's not very hopeful and that's not very great and pastors aren't supposed to say that, but that's just the reality of it. Because people have been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to return. And within that time, people begin to lose hope. I just heard a conversation between two gentlemen, um, I think fairly financially successful, you know, living you know, pretty good lives. And one guy says, I don't even believe in Jesus. He used other words, but I have to use a G-rated version for church. I don't even believe in Jesus, but when I'm on that plane and 35,000 feet, feet up in the air and the turbulence hits a little hard, I reconnect. Another guy says, I don't believe in Jesus, but when I'm in an elevator, I I pray to him. Which is interesting, because it's almost as though we, oh, people in general only want Jesus when they need him. But that's because we're waiting. That's because we don't see this tangibleness of Christ. And it's hard for people, and I venture to believe or to guess that there are some of you here who have struggled with that same doubt. Is Jesus even coming back? I've been waiting a long time. I've experienced a lot of heartache and a lot of hardship. Is Jesus even coming back? But the stories of of Jesus that he tells in Matthew 25 is a reminder that we are going to wait. We will wait. 
and we will either be prepared to meet him or we will not. In John chapter 14, just to give you a little more um, impetus behind some of this, John 14, keep your finger in Matthew 25 because we're coming back to that. But in John chapter 14, so that's page 763. John 14, verse 1, just to kind of give you some, show you how Jesus does this. John 14, verse 1, page 763 says this. Jesus tells his believers, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Echoes the words of eternal life is to know the Father and him whom he has sent, which is Jesus Christ. You see, when those thoughts of doubt, when those thoughts of maybe Jesus isn't coming, maybe I'm doing all of this for nothing, maybe I could be sleeping in on Saturdays instead of coming to church because Jesus may not come in my lifetime, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. You know, trust comes at a premium in our society because we have all been let down in our lives. We can probably not even count how many times we have been betrayed or hurt by the people we thought we could trust. Countless times each one of you I know has felt that betrayal and the sting of that pain. And so God says, while you wait, as it gets uncomfortable, as it gets difficult, even in the crucible and in the worst of times, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. You know, one of the ways that I have found to trust God isn't just through my experiences. I hate learning through experience. I hate learning the hard way and the painful way. So one of the ways I try to avoid that is learn from the mistakes of others, but also I try to establish this trust by lear- just by reading Scripture. Because when we read the stories of the Old Testament, what we find is these stories of a God who can do all things. Remember, God God raised Jesus from the dead. He did the impossible. And what we can take from that is trust that the God who can do the impossible for someone who was dead can also do the impossible for you in your life. And he can resurrect even the worst of your situations and redeem you even from your wretched past. People may not want to let you forget your past or the things that you have done, but God allows you to leave that behind. And God says, trust me. And verse 2 of John 14 says this. Listen to this, okay? Remember, there's a story of a groom who leaves to prepare a place for his future wife, and then he's going to come back and pick up the wife and the, and the, and the, what are the, what are the bridesmaids, and then take them back to be with him, right? To the party. Now listen to what Jesus says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. You see what Jesus is doing here? He is using first century wedding language to remind his hearers and his believers that the waiting time is undefined and that they may not know when he's coming back, but they can trust God because A, he has not betrayed them. They have all the stories that reminding of them. And he says, in my father's house are many many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. Verse 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, and you know the place where I am going. Regardless of how difficult it is for us as we wait, the truth is, is that Jesus has given us his word, word 
is eternal. And just knowing that he will come back. Now, I don't know how you, as my friends, are hearing this message. But I know that as I am reading this, this gives me so much hope. Because I'll be honest with you, there have been times in my life where I have doubted that he is coming. There have been times in my life in what we call these valley experiences where everything is grim and everything is dark and I cannot imagine how things can get any better and I wonder to myself, Jesus, if you're there. But I'm constantly reminded of the words of Scripture where God says, trust me, I am coming back. And I believe that those words are more valuable than silver or gold more valuable than any limit on a credit card or a bank statement or a bank account. These words are more valuable than a perfect 4.0 GPA. These words are more valuable than how many zeros are in your paycheck after the number. These words are more valuable and carry more weight than anything and everything in this world. More than the love that your wife or husband has for you, more than the love that your parents have for you, more than anything in the entire world, these words have eternal weight. So I want to finish by sharing with you a second story. We still have time. Go back to Matthew chapter 25, page 702. The question I want to ask and I want to answer in this next story is so what does it look like as we wait? What does it look like to wait well? Remember we started with the story that says that there were some who will be prepared and some who will not. That's the story of the, of the bridesmaids. So what does it look like to be prepared? Now some of you are what must I do to make sure that I get in, that, the, that when Jesus comes as the groom, what, can, what must I do to make sure that I'm in? And I would caution you to remember the story of the rich young ruler who Jesus, I do everything to the best of my ability. What do I have left? And Jesus says, what does he say? Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the man walks away because he was very rich. The idea behind that story is that perhaps there are things in all of our lives. We may feel like we are living the very best that we can, that we are giving God our very best, 110%, but God says no matter how good you are, there may always be something that is getting in the way of fully committing your life to me. So I would caution you to say, well, what must I do? Instead, let's just look at what Jesus says. Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one man he gave five talents of money, to another two, and to another one talent, each according to their ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once, put his money to work, and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, again, Jesus is painting this picture of waiting. The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five, so a total of ten. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man with two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. He said, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that, I re- so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have abundance. On a surface reading of this story, we think it's about money and investing. Take your money, invest it wisely, and you will have a good return. That's what culture tells us. That's not what this story is about. Because this is a parable, and it's a story, a parable Jesus uses to give deeper truths. So here's what's actually going on. Every one of you has been given a gift. Some of you have more gifts than others. It doesn't make you better or worse. It just means that we're on different paths and parts of our journey. And what the Bible tells us is that, because this is a story about waiting. While we're waiting, Jesus isn't saying, go and get rich and invest all the money you have. That wouldn't make any sense in what the scriptures are telling us. But what he's saying is that as you wait, the gifts, the talents, the passions, everything that God has given to you for you to use at your disposal, use it to give honor and glory to God. What does he say? He says, come and enjoy the master's happiness. Twice he says that. So where does this third guy say, well, this guy is angry and mad and evil? So what happens is that the one who has five and the one who has two, everything that God has given to them, they use in order to give honor and glory to God. They use it to witness to this master of theirs. But the last one, he was functioning out of fear. You know, so many times we function out of fear in our relationships with God. If I do this, he's going to be mad. If I do this, God's going to punish me. I can't tell you how many times I have encountered something, and in my mind I thought, God, why are you punishing me? Or even in jest and in joking, I think to myself, oh, God must be punishing me for that. Because so much we have this idea that we must function out of a relationship, out of fear with God. But let me ask you this. For any, and don't raise your hands, please. We don't, we don't want to know. <laughs> how many of you have ever been in a relationship and you were constantly afraid of how the other person was going to react? You weren't sure how they were going to be when they came home or how they were going to be when you next saw them. And so what do we do? What, what do we do? Do we, do we then go even further in love with those people or do we then begin to kind of distance ourselves? Because a relationship doesn't function with the foundation. You can't be afraid. And so when we come to our relationship with God, if we're afraid of what God's going to do, then there is no love. The Bible tells us that where there is perfect love or mature love, it casts out all fear. And so if you are afraid of God or if you feel like God is going to smite you or punish you for all of the things you are doing, I encourage you to go back and think and rethink, why do I see fear in this God of love and mercy and grace and generosity? You see, these stories in the scripture are talking about what it looks like to be prepared. 
And all this is saying is, are you being faithful to where God has called you to? Are you being faithful to what God has called you to do? The Bible says, I didn't know you. The next story that we can't even get into, but the very next story in in Matthew chapter 25, it talks about people who do all of the right things all of the time. And when Jesus comes, he tells them, I never knew you. You see, so it's not just about doing the right things, but it's about having the right motivation in your heart for why you are doing what you are doing. You see, when, um, when these servants invested these talents, is there any sure investment in business? No, right? They used to say real estate is the best investment, but even that isn't so great anymore. There is no 100% investment. And so Jesus is saying, this guy who had five talents, he's investing it, and it was risky. And he, he towed the line. I mean, he took the risk. He, he, he took the leap of faith, knowing that he could have failed, but he was doing it because he was doing it for the master who loved him and whom he loved in return. So when we wait for the second coming of Christ, as we wait in this world, it's not to be like the third guy who just kind of barricades himself inside his home so that he he will stay away from all of the bad things and he doesn't watch any television and he doesn't look at internet and he doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't read novels. I had a a really good friend of mine further along in his journey of faith and and in life. Um, He was a leader in one of my churches, not in this church. And I remember we took a trip for a conference, and I remember him telling me, I haven't read a novel in 20-some years because I was told by a pastor that God hates it when I read novels. I remember thinking to myself, if we just barricade ourselves into our house, we are of no good to the world. If we barricade ourselves in our homes trying to make sure that we don't sin or do anything. I'm not saying go and sin. I'm just saying when we barricade ourselves for the purpose of not sinning, we're not helping anyone because we're isolating ourselves from others. And God says, I have given you these gifts. Take them. Multiply them. Take risks with them. Do whatever it is. And if you do it for the honor and the glory of God, we believe that the Bible says that God will honor that. Now, you may take the gifts that God has given you and you may fail. And it's not from, you know, then it wasn't God's will. (laughs) But as we wait, in order to be prepared for the day when Jesus comes, are we working for the kingdom? Are we doing things that are honoring and glorifying God? If we are doing that, then there is no need for fear. Fear only begins to creep in when we think that God is demanding of us things. The only time fear creeps in into our relationships with God is when we're not living to give honor and glory to God. So I encourage you and I invite you and I challenge you. As you live your life day by day and moment by moment, I want you to ask yourself, is what I am doing giving honor and glory to God or is it only honoring myself? And the conversations that you have with the people whom you love, right? The people we love get our wrath the worst, okay? I know that. So perhaps the next time you are about to raise your voice to the people you love, maybe you should ask, does this give honor and does this give glory to God? The next time we want to talk not so nicely about someone that we don't like very much, we should ask, does this give honor and glory to God? Because I believe that if you ask yourself and you learn to live that question every moment of every day, not only are you preparing yourself for the coming of Christ, but then there won't be any fear because you know that God is already within you Bible tells us that God lives in our hearts. 
and that we will be ready for that coming of Christ. But more importantly, if we live with this economy of giving honor and glory to God, we are beginning to live the eternal kind of life now. So that when eternity comes and when we spend forever in the presence of God, we will just continue to do what we've been doing all along.